Luke 16, verse 1. It says, And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And so he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for you may no longer be steward. As we come into chapter 16, we're coming off um, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, as it's been known traditionally throughout the church age. Um, and, And there is within the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, a secondary theme that is largely eclipsed by the primary intent that Jesus had in giving that passage. And that secondary theme is that both sons in that parable that Jesus told were more concerned with the father's wealth and inheriting his goods than they were with his person. And so what Jesus does now, coming off the heels of giving that correction to, uh, to the Pharisees, he now speaks um, and, and he capitalizes and takes advantage of it and uses it now as an opportunity to teach about what is the proper perspective for the disciple or for the Christian as it concerns our relationship with money or with material uh, things, material wealth or material possessions. And so Jesus does that here and he begins it by talking, giving a parable about a rich man who has a steward. And he says that he has a steward and there's an accusation that's made before this rich man that his steward or his uh, CFO, if you would, his chief financial officer or his accountant has been unfaithful in the way that he's been dealing with uh, the CEO's uh, resources. And so there's obviously a little bit of credibility to the accusation that's coming to the point where um, the CEO has already made up his mind that he's going to fire this accountant or the CFO uh, as soon as he finds out exactly where all the money went. And so he calls him to himself and he asks him to give an account. Now, uh, a thing that must be considered or, or pondered concerning the position of a steward uh, in this context is that what his job was, was to um, use the resources that belonged to someone else to turn a profit for that someone else. So he's dealing with money or goods that are not his in the whole process. And what's expected of him is that he's going to be faithful and wise or shrewd in his dealings with those things and hopefully then turn a profit uh, uh, or at least deal in the best way that he can on behalf of the owner. But that's not the case here. This man um, is crooked. He has been um, squandering the master's goods and to a point now where he's going to lose his job because of it. So what happens in verse 3, it says, So then the steward, knowing now that he's about to lose his job, he said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig... And to beg, I am ashamed. And so he kind of looks at his options now in this interim season between when he gets the email letting him know that he's about to be terminated and when all of his uh, contacts and resources are, are, are then stripped away from him. And he knows he's got a short time to do something about the situation that he's in. And so he comes up with a plan in verse four. He says, I'm resolved what to do so that when I'm put out of the stewardship, 
they may receive me into their houses. He says, okay, I've got a plan. I don't want to dig and I, I'm ashamed to beg. That would be way too low for, for a man of my uh, you know, stature and resume. And so uh, I, I've got a plan. I've got to do something so that I can get a job within the circle of my master's um, uh, network before it's too late. And so it says in verse 5 that he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, those that owed money to his boss. And he said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now we get an idea of just how wealthy uh, this um, CEO is in the whole thing. A hundred measures of oil would be by today's dollars and cents, about 150 to $200,000 worth of olive oil. So this is big business, big agriculture, if you would, in those days. That's the first. He said, how much do you owe my master? A hundred measures of oil. And so he said unto him, take thy bill and sit down quickly and write 50. He says, we're going to settle it at 50 cents on the dollar. You just write out the debt, the full price for what you owe him at 50% of the total and we'll call it even. Then verse seven, he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Now, that's a much more valuable commodity and a much larger amount. This is between four and $500,000 uh, worth of wheat that is owed to the master by this debtor. And so he said unto him, take thy bill and write 80. And so in both of these instances, he takes off about $75,000 uh, worth of what is owed. And he gives them a great discount if they'll pay their bill in full now. And so Jesus then takes this and he, he, he expands now and he goes in verse eight and he says, and the Lord, lowercase l, the boss, the CEO, commended the unjust steward, not, or be, it says, because he had done wisely or shrewdly, not because of his dishonesty. He doesn't commend him for being dishonest, but he does commend his shrewdness or his wisdom. And then Jesus now begins to apply it by saying this. He says, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And so now we begin to understand the context and the reason why Jesus is giving this parable or this story. And what it is, it's a parable of comparison or of contrast. And what he's saying is that here's what the unjust steward or the unfaithful employee did when he found himself in that situation, is that he had acted unwisely in squandering the goods and getting caught. And so he found himself in a position where he needed to set himself up for the future. And so needing to set himself up for the future, he took an account of what resources he had available in order to set himself up for the future. And then he made the best move he could so that when he lost his job because of his unfaithfulness, he would have some place to land. So he used his present goods to create a future place. And then Jesus uses that example and he says that in that respect... The children of this world are wiser than the children of light. Now, what is it that Jesus is seeking to get at in that? Every single one of us is a steward of God's resources. 
And God's resources come into our lives in various ways in many different forms. It comes in the form of our talents and the things that God has given to us, the gifts that we have that we're then able to use to both reflect him in the world, to live a life and eke out a living in this world. God gives to us many different resources. It comes sometimes in the, uh, in the form of the time that we have. Sometimes it's in the form of the material wealth or the money that we have. All of these things are resources that have been given to us by God. And what Jesus is exhorting or challenging us to do is to have the mindset of using the resources that have been given to us in this age, in this time now, in order to create for ourselves the best place that we can in the future kingdom that is coming. In other words, the purpose for the resources that we have now on this earth are not just to enrich ourselves or to serve ourselves or to do the best that we can by and for ourselves but rather those things have been given to us in part at least if not the whole that we might then invest them in his kingdom and in his purposes so that when we are in his kingdom we land in the best position that we possibly can and so jesus says in that regard the children of this age are wiser they know how to set themselves up for the future But we're in the kingdom of light and we also have a future. And our future is not in this world. Our future is in that which is to come. And so would that we would be the type of people that would see that and use the resources that we have, our wealth, our material possessions, and that we would see those things as an opportunity to make investment in eternal things. That is heavenly things, the things that are to come. And so Jesus says, by way of expanding on his application in verse 9, he says, And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, or worldly wealth, treasure, or money, so that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitation. Now, I have to confess, this is one of those times that I'm about ready to chuck the King James out the window and say, what in the world, Jesus, did you just say and what does it mean? And so, uh, you know, because I'm not going to chuck my King James out the window, I just looked up a few words and I'll give it to you this way and it will go up on the screen and it should stay there. I hope it comes up on the screen as long as they get that ironed out uh, and it'll stay there long enough for you to to, uh, write it down. But it's be wise with the way that you use money in this world so that when it fails, because money ultimately will always fail, or when you die, which has the same result as money failing, that you have used it in a way that benefits you eternally. That's what Jesus is getting at uh, in that verse, that be careful the way that you see and use the resources and treasures that you have, and specifically as it concerns the money that you have, so that you've used it in such a way that when there is no more money or opportunity to invest, because you're dead or it fails, that your eternal position is set up the best way that's possible. And then he expands further on that in verse 10 by saying very plainly, very clearly, he that is faithful in that which is least. Isn't it interesting that he's comparing that which is least to worldly wealth, money, uh, talents, treasures, things that we have in this world. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore 
You have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon or concerning just the way that you use your money. That's what Jesus is saying there. Then who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, that is the resources that you have now belong to God, he's given to you on loan, then who shall give you that which is your own? And essentially what he's saying this is he's saying that how you manage money in the earthly realm, at least in relationship to your future place in heaven, that will determine your faithfulness when heaven's resources are distributed. So God's going to look at the way that we use what we have now. And when we get to heaven and he's committing the true riches, the eternal things to us in his kingdom, that he will use the way that we stewarded what we had on this world as a means of determining how he will distribute those things. And then he sums it up or, or closes it out in verse 13 by saying that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. And so you can either use your money to serve God or like they were doing, you can use God to serve money. And that's what both sons in the parable of the lost sons were doing. The first son was reformed when he went out and, uh, you know, wanted to eat pig slop. The second one was open-ended. We don't know if he ever repented and, and got his head screwed on right. But Jesus is basically saying here is that money is not an end in this world. It is the means to a greater end. And it is our service to God that all things in our lives should be primarily aimed at. But all in all, the point of this parable in verses 1 through 13 is that Jesus is teaching us to use our present situation and our present resources to set ourselves in the best position eternally as we can. That's the exhortation that Jesus has given to us. Well, the Pharisees heard this teaching of Jesus and they weren't thrilled about it at all. And so it says in verse 14, the Pharisees also, who just happened to be covetous, covetous. <laughs> the covetous Pharisees, meaning that they were all into wealth and they were all into the status that their wealth afforded them. And they were all into the appearance that it provided them of being righteous and holy before God based upon the fact that they were rich. It says that they heard all these things and they derided him. So they heard the teaching of Jesus and they heard the conviction or felt the conviction that should come from that teaching and they refused it. They rejected it. And so Jesus looks at it and cuts right to the core in verse 15 by saying to them, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God so they refused the teaching and the conviction on the basis that they already had the approval of men and thus because they had the approval of men they thought we don't need to heed the conviction that's coming through the teaching of Jesus but here's the mistake that they were making is that they were thinking that because they had man's approval that is, that men considered them to be right with God, that therefore that must stand also to mean that they have God's approval automatically. If man can look at my life and determine, well, he's doing pretty good with God. He's got it all together. He's got a lot of resources. God has obviously blessed him. He's living well and, and he's doing good. That's the blessing of God upon his life. 
And so I take that appearance that I've been able to um, project upon others and I now translate that into thinking that God sees the same thing. I'm righteous before God because people think that I am good. And so what Jesus does here is he reminds them that the standard for approval in heaven is not what men see, but it's what God says. Notice in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presses into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. And then he gives an example. Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. So what Jesus does with these Pharisees is he takes their inflated self-image that they had based upon their material wealth and the position that others thought that it afforded them before heaven. And he says to them, listen, you guys don't understand something, that things might be highly esteemed among men. They will praise you when you do well for yourself. They'll look and say, I want to be like that because of your wealth and your riches and your appearance. But he says, sometimes you've got to realize that those things that are highly esteemed before men are an abomination in the sight of God. Here's the standard that God is looking at when he measures the quality of someone's righteousness. And then here's what he does. He lays the law on them. The law of Moses. He says the law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and all men press into it. In other words, since the time of John the Baptist, which was the forerunner of Jesus Christ, that sealed up the sum of what the law and the prophets represented. And he said, now that that sum has been sealed up, there is no more law and prophets. We're moving into a new era. What has been laid out in its fullness is what God requires for righteousness if anyone is going to stand before a holy God and think themselves to be justified in his sight. If you have kept all of what Moses said and you can measure up to the standard that's been laid out by the prophets, if you can meet that standard, then you can call yourself justified before God. Not on the basis of how much money you have and how much God has blessed your life. Well, God is blessing. Of course he's pleased with me. Jesus says, not so. And then he says, here's the standard. It's in a whole lot stricter than you think. He says, whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. And so he takes their liberal interpretation of an obscure law and he gives it the most conservative and stringent application that he can. What he's doing by cutting right to this in their midst is he's saying, you guys better be perfect if you think that you have what it takes to be justified before God. That's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. Now, we understand that in the gospel, that is not the basis of our righteousness. What Jesus is doing here is what Jesus always did when he was preaching the gospel to anyone, is that he laid the law of Moses upon them in order that they might understand that they are sinners and that they are lost and that they are not justified before a holy God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, when the Apostle Paul was trying to explain and does explain so clearly in that gospel that it isn't by the deeds of the law that we're saved. He said in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he said, 
For by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. In other words, if you're here tonight, as well as those that were there in the audience when Jesus was speaking, and you think that you can be declared righteous before a holy God based upon the fact that your good outweighs your bad, or that you in some way reach a standard of morality that is acceptable before God, then you are sadly mistaken. Because it is impossible for anyone to approach a holy God and declare their own righteousness, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. No one can stand before God on the basis of the law. Well, then you say, well, then what's the purpose of God giving the law? Why would he give us commandments if we couldn't be saved by keeping them? Well, he answers the question in the same verse. At the end of the verse, he says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, what the law does is that the law makes me realize that I'm a sinner. And in realizing that I'm a sinner, it brings me to the place of conviction and an understanding that I'm not right before a holy God, that I'm on the wrong side of his favor, and that if something doesn't happen to move me from the wrong side of his favor to the right side of his favor, then that means I will be eternally lost. And that's why Jesus always laid the law upon people when he was showing to them what the standard of righteousness is. Because the law is essential for every person that will come to salvation through Jesus Christ. Because until I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I'm lost and that I don't have God's favor in my life, then I can't recognize that I need a substitution. See, the only way that a person can be saved is either they keep the whole law, which we've already determined that nobody can, or they trade places with someone who did. God made provision for that within the law. That's what the whole sacrificial system was about. You could bring a pure lamb and that lamb could cover your sin. But the problem is that it could only cover your sin. It couldn't take it away. It says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You know why? Because it's man for man. That's the righteous declaration of the law. And so you have to find someone who's righteous and perfect to trade places with you, the sinner, if you want salvation. That's hard to do. Because what that means is if you find a perfect person, it means that you have to convince them to give you their, you, their ticket to heaven and convince them to take your ticket to hell. Will you trade with me? It's a good deal. You've been perfect. You've lived it your whole life. Actually, let's make this transaction the moment before I die because I know I'm going to mess it up <laughs> between now and then. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus so loved the world that he came into it, lived a sinless life, but died a sinner's death. That in so doing, he might purchase a get out of hell free ticket. And he offers it to whosoever will. But here's the problem. We don't know we need it until the law convicts us. But when we're convicted by the law, we come to the realization that we're in need of a savior. And if we don't have that salvation, then we're lost and separated from God forever. And so Jesus says the law and the prophets are essential. They are pressed up against, he says, all those that live upon the world because everyone must deal with the fact that they are a sinner. And if you ignore that plea, if you ignore that fact that you're a sinner, then you'll plunge into a Christless, godless eternity. But if through the law and the prophets, you'll allow the conviction of sin to come into your heart, and you come to a Savior 
who willingly traded places with you, you'll find that that Savior is willing to make the switch and to give you his salvation and to take your sin upon himself. And thus the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians chapter, um, oh, I don't know, somewhere. He said, it'll go up on the screen. He says, for by the law, no, sorry. The law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. That's the whole purpose of the law. It brings us to that place where we're saved. And thus Jesus lays the law on them now. Then Jesus goes on and he gives another, actually, I'm not sure if it's a parable because he um, names people in this one, but we'll take it as a parable for now because it's in the same format as the other parables. He says, uh, and he does this to illustrate the point that he has just made to the Pharisees. He says in verse 19 that there was a certain rich man which was, was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And so we have a very wealthy man in this instance. And then he says, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So what you have in the setup here is that you have two people that are on two complete opposite ends of the spectrum, the social spectrum. You have a wealthy rich man who fared sumptuously and you have a beggar so destitute that he's asking for table crumbs and dogs are licking the sores that are on him. And that is just extreme from one end uh, of the spectrum all the way down to the other. So the appearance would be that one of those people has been extremely blessed by God and that the other one is most likely probably cursed by God. That would be the philosophy of the Pharisee. What we find out is that the exact opposite is true. In verse 22, it says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell... He lifted up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And so pause right there for just a minute. You see that the destiny of these two men was in no way a reflection of the way that they lived their lives upon earth, at least in appearance. We see that this rich man died outside of faith. He died in his sins. He died separated from God. Though he had an abundance of wealth upon the world, it was no reflection of God's blessing in his life. On the other hand, you have a beggar so destitute, but yet we see that his position is that he died in faith. There's two clues here. Number one is his name is given to us. His name is Lazarus. Now, I don't know if this actually happened, that there really was a man named Lazarus, and this actually was the truth of a matter, or if it was the name that Jesus was pointing to. The name Lazarus means, with God is help, or God is my help which is great because that's exactly how every one of us is saved, with God's help. We don't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. The other thing we're told is that he's carried to Abraham's bosom. This is the only place in the Bible where paradise or heaven is referred to in this way as Abraham's bosom. And there's many different philosophies and um, thoughts as to what Jesus is talking about and here's what it means and all the rest. But I think Jesus calls it Abraham's bosom very simply to point out that this man died in faith. That Abraham is the father of faith, all those that believe in faith. And so he's carried to Abraham's bosom, the place where those who die in faith are taken. He's taken to heaven. 
And so it says that he's carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And then uh, this man sees Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom. And it says in verse 24 that he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Now, not to make light of this man's suffering, but what we see is that hell is not remedial because this man is unchanged. I mean, here's a guy who's still barking out orders to people that he perceives to be lesser than himself. I mean, here he is tormented in hell and he thinks he can still have Lazarus, the beggar, bossed around to come and do something for him where he is there in hell. But it says that Abraham said, son, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things but now he is comforted and you are tormented now what Jesus is not suggesting in this passage or by saying these words or what Abraham you know in the parable is not suggesting is that if you live comfortably in this world now then that means that you're going to go to hell someday in the future or if you live in poverty now that that somehow guarantees that you'll have good things in the life later on. That would go against everything else that the Bible teaches. But what Jesus is saying here is very clearly that good things or bad things that you experience and have in this life are no indication of where you are at with God. Meaning you could have it real good here today and think that I'm okay with God because look how much he's blessed my life. And that is absolutely, possibly false. You could be so far from God, even though you fare incredibly well upon the world. On the contrary, you could be very destitute here tonight. You could be poor. You could have not two pennies to rub together. You could long for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And you could think, well, I am absolutely cursed by God because of this position that I'm in practically. You could be completely wrong. What you have or don't have is no indication as to your spiritual state before God. So he says, and besides all this, in verse 26, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from you. Now, this is a very interesting insight into um, eternal destinations. What Jesus is telling us here, letting us in on is this. Number one, is that you will be, you and I will be aware in some way, whether by vision or just by uh, insight, into what is going on in the other place, especially those that are in hell. It says that uh, the rich man being in torment and seeing afar off Abraham and Lazarus in his bosom that he said, that in hell he was aware of the paradise that he himself was missing out on. And yet we're also told that it is impossible for someone who is in the one location to pass into the other and vice versa. You cannot go from, so all those St. Peter jokes about the golf cart going between heaven and hell, and that's all false. It's not real. You can't pass from one to the other. And so he said, verse 27, the rich man, he says, I pray thee therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he might testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Please send someone back from the dead to go and warn my five brothers. I don't want them to feel what I'm feeling here. And so Abraham saith unto him, 
they have Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus is talking about back from verse uh, 16. He says, let them hear them. And he said, nay, or no, no, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So what Abraham says in response to the request, send someone back, warn my brothers. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them look at the scriptures. Let them hear the testimony of what God has set forth in the world that is heralded in the synagogues every Sunday. That in our world is carried through the testimony and the mouths of Christians to all those that are out. That you've got to listen to the testimony of God. And what he says is that if they will not hear Moses, the law, and the prophets, and allow the conviction to come into their lives that they are sinners and lost and that they better do something about it before they die, then even if they see a miracle to the rising of one from the dead, they will not receive the truth about their spiritual condition. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that every person who comes to faith in him will come upon the path or through the door of the law and the prophets. There is no salvation without conviction of sin, which then leads to repentance and faith. It's essential that the law be laid down. I read this past week the famous sermon that was given by Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's an interesting sermon that he gave. And what he did, he took a a text from Deuteronomy um, that said the, the foot of the wicked will soon slip. And he used it to paint a very vivid picture of the frailty of fallen men and how they abide under the wrath of God and how at any minute they're at a place where they can slip into a Christless eternity and that God owes them nothing, not even one more day to repent. And that if God were to give them what they deserved, they would immediately plunge into an eternal hell of God's voracious and eternal wrath. And he paints a very vivid picture of that. And then he makes a plea at the end. And he says, how would one person in hell, how much would one person in hell give to be in a congregation like you are in here right now? And to hear these words that they might turn from those sins and put their faith in Christ and change their eternal destiny. And then he urged the congregation to make that decision before it was too late. Well, two things happened as a result of that fire and brimstone sermon that Jonathan Edward preached. Number one is that it triggered one of the great awakenings in the United States of America. A huge revival swept out from Connecticut throughout the land because of that sermon that was preached. Before he was even done giving it, the altars were filled with people that were weeping and repenting and crying out for the mercy of God. You know what the other thing was that happened? He got fired. (laughs) He was asked to step down because it was too much wrath, too much hellfire, too much brimstone. They considered it a graceless sermon to talk about the wrath and the fire of God and the judgment of God. Well, listen carefully. Jesus was very clear that without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made upon the cross... There is no salvation. And unless a person comes to the place where they realize that they are in a lost state and that their sins have separated them from God 
and that there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. And then they cry out to God for mercy and plead that the blood of Jesus Christ would cover their sins and that they would be saved. Then that person is lost. Hellfire, damnation, is essential because without it, you cannot come to repentance and faith. And so Jesus says, if you will not hear the law and the prophets, then someone would not even be persuaded even if someone rose from the dead. And that's very tongue-in-cheek, on purpose by Jesus, because someone is going to rise from the dead. It's going to be Jesus Christ himself. And thus, they would reject the testimony of Moses against themselves, and they will reject the testimony of Jesus in rising from the dead. Well, Jesus then turns his attention, as we turn into chapter 17 now, to the disciples, and he talks to them, and here's his theme. You guys see the contrast between a true disciple and a Pharisee. But every Pharisee starts as a true disciple. And so how is it that you can keep from being a disciple and turning into a Pharisee? And that's the theme of the first half of chapter 17. We'll just do the first 19 verses. It says, Then Jesus said unto the disciples, so he turns it to his followers, It is impossible but that offenses will come. An offense is a thing by which a person is entrapped being drawn into error or sin. And that's exactly what had happened to the Pharisees, and it's what the Pharisees were doing to others. They were corrupting everyone else's view of who God was. They were forming wrong opinions about God based upon the example that they were getting from the Pharisees. And Jesus now warns his disciples, you don't want to be a cause of offending someone or stumbling somebody in their opinion about God that because of what you're doing, the way that you're living, they formulate a wrong opinion about God. He says, it's going to happen, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. In other words, God takes it very seriously, the picture that we portray of him to the lost. And notice he's not speaking this to the apostles. He's not saying this to preachers or pastors or church workers. He's saying this to those that claim his name. And what Jesus is warning is that it is possible for you and I to either give someone a right view of who God is or we could give someone a wrong view of who God is based upon what we believe about God and the way that we uh, live our lives before God and before the world. And so Jesus, what he does now in these next verses is he gives us three warnings or three ways wherein it's possible for us to become Pharisees. How do disciples become Pharisees? Number one, it's in verses three through six, is if we allow the root of bitterness to come into our lives. In verse 3, he says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turns again to thee, saying, I repent, then you shall forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to the sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it would obey you. So 
he begins by saying this. He's saying, listen, if your brother trespasses against you, now a trespass is the strongest word concerning sin. It means on purpose, I meant to do it, offense. Meaning I come up to you, I look at you in the face and I punch you. It's not an accident. I didn't trip. It wasn't a mistake. I punched you. It's an offense. And then I turn to you and and you rebuke me. That that is essential. (laughs) And you say, don't do that. That's wrong. That's sin. You just sinned against me. And that conviction hits me. And I go, oh, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. And then I repent. And I say, you know what? Would you please forgive me? I got angry and it was wrong. What Jesus is saying then is that you are to forgive. And then he takes it seven steps further. And he says, if it happens seven times in a row and there's repentance, then what we are called to do when that repentance comes is that we are called to forgive. And the disciples hearing that say, that is radical. I mean, who can do that, really? I mean, for someone to sin against me, trespass seven times in one day, and they come and say, sorry. I mean, after like the second or third time, I'm going to start to think, I don't think your repentance is sincere. You know, but Jesus is saying, if they come, then you forgive them seven times. Now, primarily what we must take from this before anything else is that if Jesus is saying that we're to forgive this way, then we must be assured that God forgives this way. But God has an advantage that we don't have. And that is that he sees the heart, right? So if we say sorry to God, he knows if we're really sorry or if we're just saying sorry and giving him lip service. But if someone comes to us and says sorry seven times, we're like, yeah, right, you're a... I'll show you what I got for your sorry, you know. That's the way we are. And the disciples, in a moment of honesty, they realize we can't do this. This is impossible. How could we forgive seven times? And so they say, increase our faith. And then Jesus says something that almost makes no sense. He says, if you say to the sycamore tree, be plucked up and planted in the sea, then it's going to happen if you speak it forth in faith. What's the application? Why would Jesus use the sycamore tree being plucked up in faith as an illustration of the forgiveness of sin? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews said this. They said, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. And here's what you need to know is that unforgiveness is fertile ground for the root of bitterness. And if I live my life as an unforgiving person, unable to forgive those that trespass against me, then the result of that is that the root of bitterness is going to take root within my heart. And the result of the root of bitterness is that I will be troubled and many will be defiled. Bitterness is a very dangerous thing. To be a bitter person or to be bitter at a person is like poisoning someone else's drink and then you drinking it yourself. It doesn't affect them at all that you're bitter against them, but it affects you in every way. And so what's the solution to it? Here's what it is, is that you're to forgive in faith. Meaning that you might not feel the forgiveness. You might not feel like forgiving, but what you're doing is by faith, you're releasing the debt that that person has accrued through their trespasses against you. You say, well, is it essential that they repent in order for me to forgive? Well, you could say yes, because Jesus said, if they come to you and repent. But can I tell you, for me personally, I like to forgive and let the debt go no matter what, because I know how it affects me if I don't. And I don't wait for a person to repent. Oftentimes, if I feel even the least bit of bitterness five minutes after something happens, 
I have to go and say, God, I release that debt in Jesus' name and I forgive them for what they did, whether they're sorry or not. And the reason why I do that is because I don't want the root of bitterness to affect my life. And what Jesus is saying here is that, listen, if you can do that by faith, even if it's seven times a day, then understand that that root will be plucked up. It will be thrown into the sea of God's forgetfulness. But bitterness turns disciples into Pharisees. When you start keeping track, keeping score, keeping record of other people's sins, watch out because you are on a fast track to unusefulness. The second thing that is a hindrance is spiritual pride. Notice in verse 7. He says, But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, the servant, by and by, when he comes in from the field, Go and sit down to eat, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may eat, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward you shall eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Listen, everything that we do for Christ in this world, whether it's vacuuming a Sunday school classroom, whether it's teaching a Bible study or leading someone in a salvation prayer that they could get saved and uh, their names written in heaven, no matter what it is that we do in the name of God, we do it as his servants. And what we are worthy of before him is absolutely nothing. And so when those things happen, that God uses us in some way, then we must maintain a spirit of humility, recognizing that we're servants, that without Christ we're lost, that we are nothing. Spiritual pride, the opposite of that, thinking that I'm something because God is using me in some way, is going to make me like a Pharisee. That's what they became. It's funny when you watch Christian television, isn't it? And you begin to see uh, the way people act and the way people are treated and addressed. And, you know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, they don't follow this principle. It's a warning. It turns disciples into Pharisees. And then finally, number three, is it's imperative that we maintain a spirit of thankfulness. He says, And it came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went... They were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan, the most unworthy. And Jesus answering said, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God except for this stranger, this Gentile, this Samaritan, this man who would, by all means of appearance, be unworthy. But he said unto him, Arise and go thy way, for thy faith has made thee whole. When we lose in our lives appreciation for what Jesus has done for us, then we lose perspective for all of life. Do you remember, Christian here today, what you were before Jesus came into your life? Can you see in some way what you would be or where you would be today 
if Jesus hadn't done for you what he did for you? If he hadn't come in and washed your sins away and taken you off the broad way and put you on the narrow way? If he hadn't broken the yoke of the addictions that you had or of the lifestyle that you were living or of the pride of your heart or the blindness of your heart? If he hadn't done those things and set you into a place where you understood his word and his way and filled you with his spirit and let you taste of his presence and begin to grow and cultivate the fruit of the Holy Spirit within your life, Do you know where you would be today? When we lose perspective of the leprosy that we've been cleansed of, and when we lose perspective of the fact that we don't deserve that he would do that for us, why? Why would he save us from those things? Why would he open our eyes? Why would Jesus hang on a cross and die and absorb the punishment that my sin deserved? Why would God do that? But if I lose perspective of that, then I become very unthankful. Or if I become unthankful, I lose perspective of all of that. It works both ways within our lives. Ingratitude causes us to become blind to everything that we have, and it only allows us to see the things that we don't have. When we become unthankful, that's the fruit of it within our lives. We can't see our blessings. We can only see what we don't have, and it gives to us a very sour disposition. I often think about what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden, especially Eve when the serpent tempted her that day. There she was standing in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent came over and began to challenge her and question her about the tree of the knowledge. And he said, has God said? And she has this discourse with him and she says, now we're not allowed to eat from this tree. And all of a sudden he did something so crafty. He said, oh, God's withholding from you. He knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and then you'll really be living. He doesn't want you to be like him. And you know what happened in that one moment? She lost perspective of everything that she had. I mean, what didn't Eve have? She was in paradise. Every tree of the garden. There was probably no night. There was no sin. There was no sickness, no corruption. God walked with them in the cool of the day. He was constantly there. He was their source for everything that they needed. There was the tree of life that they would eat from constantly being refreshed. They were in perfection. It was the beauty of what God made. He called it very good. But in one moment of thinking about what she didn't have and being ungrateful for what she did have, she lost perspective of it all. You know what the result was? She lost everything that she had because she traded it for the one thing that she didn't have that she thought she needed that was really a detriment to her existence. Unthankfulness does horrible things within our lives. And on the contrary, thankfulness does incredible things within our lives. The joy, the perspective, the vision that it gives us, the rejoicing and realizing what he has done for us, what he has given to us, how good God has been, And it can't help but turn us into a place of rejoicing. But when we become unthankful, we're on the fast track to becoming unfruitful. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. Unthankfulness led to unfruitfulness. And so three warnings that Jesus gives to his disciples, to us, so that we might continue to be fruitful and not to become forgetful of his blessings and thus become unfruitful like the Pharisees. He warns that we ought to forgive, that the root of bitterness not take root within our lives. He warns us that we're to be spiritually 
humble and low and not to think of ourselves more highly as we ought. We're unprofitable servants. We're doing what is our duty to do. And number three is that we remain incredibly grateful for all that he's done in our lives. He withholds no good thing from those uh, he loves and who love him. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord, that we can uh, search the scriptures in this way and that we can hear what you say to us, Lord, and we can be touched and changed by it. We thank you, Lord, for these things that have been recorded for us that allow us, Lord, to uh, examine ourselves. And tonight as we sit here and just reflect, Lord, upon the things that we've heard concerning uh, stewardship and the resources that you've given to us, Father, and the way that we're using those things to um, set up our eternity. Lord, are we using the things that you've given to us, our time and our talents and our money, Lord, to, uh, to, to set up our eternal portfolio? Or are we so consumed with ourself, Lord, that we're squandering your resources on ourselves and on our lives? We pray that tonight you'd bring us perspective, much needed perspective, Lord. And especially as we see the day approaching, Father, that we would be aware that you're coming soon and that your reward is with you, that we might be wise. And Father, I pray tonight, Lord, for any that might be here, that might sit in the seat of those who've been running from the conviction of the law, that tonight, Lord, they stand over a thread, a hairbreadth that separates between them and hell. And Lord, they failed to listen to the conviction and heed the voice of the Spirit that says, turn to Jesus and live. I pray, Father, that you would give them the grace to flee to the throne of grace, that they might find mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask that you would just give to us a fruitful life, that we wouldn't slip into the category of Pharisee or unfruitfulness through our attitudes or through our misrepresenting of you or through a root of bitterness or of any other thing, but God, that you would just give us the grace that we might live completely for you. And so we thank you, Lord, for teaching us these things. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would seal them within our hearts, Lord. God, that we might be like Christ and that we might have the abundant life that you give. We just thank you tonight for your sovereign power. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't yet know you, that has yet, Lord, to fall into the loving arms of a merciful Savior, I pray, Lord, that the conviction of your Spirit would draw them to a relationship with Christ. Father, that they would see that your arms are stretched out, that the holes in your hand and the scars, Lord, that are still present in your body are a testament to your love and your willingness to save. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that's on that broad path that leads to destruction, Lord, that they would find you in your mercy here tonight. That even now, Lord, you would move upon their heart, that they would receive you by faith. Maybe is there anyone here tonight that you don't know Jesus Christ? Maybe you want to pray that prayer of asking Jesus to come into your life as we close the service, not drawn out, but maybe you just lift your hand and you'd say, I'd like to pray to receive Christ tonight. I'd like to see my name written in heaven. Is there anyone here as we close that wants to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Just lift up your hand. We'll pray together. Father, we thank you. We pray that everyone here knows you, Lord pray that everyone here knows you. Let the fear of God and the love of God keep us in the narrow way. In Jesus' name, amen.